Well, welcome everyone to the latest edition of our Bell's Brief Chats um, as we bask in the glory of England winning last night over Germany. Um, just a quick word on Bell's that it stands for British Educated Life Scientists um, and it's a unique global initiative that is strengthening links and connections with UK educated life scientists um, and a broader global audience across the world. I'm delighted to welcome Annalisa Jenkins to our podcast today. Welcome. Thanks, Nigel. Good to be here. So let's dive straight in and uh, sort of tell us a little bit about where you grew up, um, where you attended school, and, and then what triggered your decision that uh, a medical career was what you wanted to pursue at the outset. Oh, well, I uh, grew up in the south of England. I was the product of a naval family, so we were pretty peripatetic, moved a lot, um, went to many different schools, but finally ended up in high school in Newbury in Berkshire. Um, and I first, uh, I guess, uh, started to think about a career in medicine. Neither of my parents actually went to university, and I attended a comprehensive school in uh, Newbury, um, but um, I started to work in, on a community basis, volunteering in the local hospital when I was about 14. And mm -hmm. so I um, was looking after young children with uh, pretty devastating uh, rare genetic disorders. And I did that twice a week. And I um, just fell in love with the, you know, this uh, notion of giving and caring and uh, also um, the environment in the hospital. I remember feeling it was such a warm, engaging sort of environment, despite the real challenges that uh, these kids and some of the staff were facing in, in helping them. So I started to think, well, perhaps a career in medicine was going to lie ahead, although uh, I had some troubles at the school uh, that hadn't really supported uh, their young students through to medical school, trying to get access to the right courses. <laughs> I was yeah. pretty, pretty diligent and resilient and forceful. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I stayed on for sixth form and uh, managed to get my uh, A-levels and uh, made my way off to Barts. And, and what, what made you choose Barts? I mean, were you always thinking one of the London medical schools or did you consider others around the country? Oh, it's a really good question. I, I really had nobody to advise me. So I was really mm -hmm. uh, left to my own devices. I had a very warm, loving family. Um, I had a tremendously supportive set of staff at my school, but I really, I didn't have access to the information that I needed. So I really picked uh, the schools that I'd heard of. Um, I, uh, I applied to, to Manchester and Bristol and, and all these other places. I actually was successful in getting offers for all of the uh, institutions I applied for. I was a pretty good I should say I was a pretty good sportswoman. I played lacrosse uh, for the West of England and I had been training at county level in tennis. So I think a lot of these medical schools thought that I was going to arrive and, and support their um, support them on the sports fields more than anything. Um, but anyway, I did get off at a place at Barts and I hadn't really been to London. Um, so I uh, thought that would be great fun. I actually, I chose Barts really because for two reasons. I had attended a school called St. Bartholomew's uh, School in Newbury. Uh, so I thought it was quite fun. And I just wanted to go to London. My parents were horrified. They wanted me to go to Bristol. I uh, thought it'd be much safer and, and a much better place for me to be. But ever the rebel, I said, no, I'm off to London. That's that, really, that was the process, frankly. It was really, yeah. really no more than me having an instinct for London is the place to be. Bart seems like the right place to be. Um, and um, how bad could it be if I made the wrong decision? <laughs> so off I went. <laughs> and was it was it at Bart's that you chose the, to, to focus on the cardiovascular field ultimately? Was it no, being, no. being exposed there? Nope. No, no, well, actually, I, um, no, absolutely not. So I really enjoyed Bart's, it was an amazing, you know, for me, you, medical school ex sort of really expanded my perspectives on life in so many different ways um, from, from where I come from. And um, so I pretty early on actually um, decided I was going to join the Navy. So uh, I realized pretty early, early on in my um, medical school that I didn't have access to the financial resources I probably needed to go all the way through 
Um, and I come from a Navy background and somebody suggested to me one day, why don't you see if the Navy will take you and pay for your way through medical school? So I did, mm -hmm. I signed up in, just into my third year at medical school. Um, and I thought actually, originally I wanted to uh, be a psychiatrist. And then I went through a phase of wanting to be an orthopedic surgeon. And then I went through a phase of wanting to be a, a nephrologist. So no, I had no idea. <laughs> frankly, right. where life was going to take me. I love medicine and I knew I always wanted to be in the hospital. I loved hospital medicine, uh, specialist medicine. But I know, I, I think it's fair to say that I was far more focused as I was moving through my clinical um, assignments on um, you know, what life was going to be like in the Navy once I graduated, because I'd already signed up as a yeah. surgeon's lieutenant. Well, I certainly understand now. I mean, that was a question I was going to pose about the the, the choice of a naval career, but you already answered that with your with your family connections. Um, but you you went in and uh, I think I'm right in saying you served with the Navy for nine years, is that right? Yeah, yeah um, that's right. And then you obviously um, you were involved during the Gulf War. Did you see action during that conflict? I most certainly did. I think many, many um, may have already heard this story, but when I, when I went down to the recruiting office, which was in, in, in London uh, one day to sign up. I was told that really they didn't take women at the time. They had a couple of women that had signed up. Mm -hmm. But uh, if I were to sign up, I would never go to sea uh, because women officers did not serve at sea. And I would, uh, if I had children, I would have to leave at that time uh, for, for that branch, the medical branch as a female. And I said, oh, that sounds fine. There's plenty of wonderful work that can be uh, pursued you know, in the UK and uh, on land, so that's fine. So that, so I signed up and um, I ended up um, in 1990 um, after my house job, which I did in the, in the, in the Navy, not in 1990, goodness me, I'm marching on too fast. Um, oh no, it was actually in 19, it must've been in 1990. Um, I was serving at HMS Rally actually down just outside of Plymouth. And it was the easiest job in the world as a physician because it was basically where all the new entry recruits, the young sailors, men and women went for their first six weeks of induction into the military and I was in the medical um, obviously department there so essentially looking after very very fit and healthy young people and um, continuing to pursue my love and, uh, and, uh, and passion for sport um, and learning actually I have to tell you some some leadership uh, skills around how to build departments manage quite mm -hmm. complex that anyway so then in the September well that summer Margaret Thatcher was deposed by John Major, if you remember, and yeah. Iraq entered Kuwait. And I got a call in the September of 1990 uh, telling me that I was to pack my bags, head up to Porton Down to learn about nuclear, biological and chemical warfare, and then off to Alverstoke in Portsmouth to learn about underwater medicine uh, for a few weeks. And I was going to join my ship um, in Abu Dhabi um, a couple of months later. And the Navy had, in that September of 1990, uh, evolved its, um, its rules around women serving overnight at sea. And the first ship, HMS Birmingham, had taken a couple, and I was going to join my ship. Um, yeah. And uh, so off I went. And I arrived at the ship to be the only woman on HMS Herald, and indeed the only woman in the squadron of the um, Minesweeper Squadron. Um, that the Herald supported, so that was five other um, minesweepers. And we, um, we patrolled um, around some part of the Gulf uh, for the remainder of the year. And then in February, of 19, February March of 1991, um, the, uh, the, the obviously went from um, the notion of Desert Shield, which was the protection uh, of uh, the region into Desert Storm, which was active conflict. And as the active conflict commenced, we moved northwards to just off the coast of Kuwait. If you remember into the burning oil fields, into the yeah. minefield. And we very much saw active service because Saddam Hussein had um, accrued a stockpile of silkworm missiles that he launched uh, from the land to the sea, aimed very much at our squadron. Uh, we were actually with the big U.S. battleships, the Wisconsin and the Missouri, um, and a couple of others. And so, yeah, we uh, we very much saw active service. And as I said, I I did serve during the conflict and became the first female physician ever to serve on the front line for the British Navy. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and happily, that all ended um, in the April of, of it was a relatively short uh, campaign. And um, yeah, and then we returned back in May of that year. Um, and wow. so I, sp- I spent that time with 700 men. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very wow. interesting experience on many different levels. <laughs> yeah, and there must have been some trepidation, certainly at the outset, until you got into it. I, interestingly, um, I think it was a case of not knowing quite what I was getting into. So I'm not sure there was that much trepidation as I set okay. off Abu Dhabi. I certainly, uh, while I was out there, it was, um, yeah, clearly it's never easy to be in conflict. And I would say to you that this conflict was relatively short lasting. We were at sea. We did obviously come under attack, but it was nothing compared to subsequent campaigns um, in Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I there were periods of time when I was certainly questioning as a woman, female position, sitting out there floating off the coast of Kuwait and Iraq, wondering what on earth I was mm. doing <laughs> and whether this really was, you know, what I really wanted for my professional career. But, but then yeah. the other thing was, you know, I'd come from a family where public service and duty to one's country was very strong in our family, mm. uh, with my and a number of my relatives. So, you know, there was always that side of me. And I think that's something that I have brought through my career and even to this present day with uh, the work I continue to do in supporting uh, the military and uh, certain public institutions. So, you know, yeah, it was it was a very interesting period of time. And it taught me a lot about leadership. It taught me a lot about under, in crisis, um, in the most extreme of circumstances. Yeah. I, always, I always say to people that, and I've said this many times subsequently, that uh, when I went into the pharma industry, I was, you know, it's like everything in our, in our careers, you know, we always come under periods of tension and crisis, et cetera. Um, I was just to say, once you've been, you know, um, at action stations with the silkworm missile inbound, and once you've also been into that um, pacing room at two o'clock in the morning, when someone's in asystole and you're trying to get the pacing wire into the right side of the heart, yeah. and you're between life and death, nothing really in the business world <laughs> can ever uh, come close to that. I mean, these are the sorts of experiences in life, I think, that, that you know, you gather along the way and that help yeah. you deal, deal with the uh, trials and tribulations of the private sector and, and, and the workplace. <laughs> so, so you returned back and I know you joined Bristol Myers Squibb, I think, in 1998. Was there some time in the NHS before that? Yes, yes. I came back from the Gulf and I went and subsequently served with the Royal Marine, which was amazing. Another, I can speak a bit later about some of the lessons that, you know, I, I was able to accrue along the way. I did air sea rescue for a bit down at uh, in yep. Falmouth, Old Rose. And then I actually came to the end of my commission because um, I'd reached the break point and I had uh, obviously made it through to Lieutenant Commander. I'd started my medical training, had my MRCP, and was starting to train in cardiovascular medicine. And the Navy said, there's one more deployment that you need to do before you can finally come back into full-time hospital medicine. And that's to go and serve as the principal medical officer on an aircraft carrier. Well, I'd actually had a three, I had children by then because they changed yeah. that rule. So I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old and I said, but I really can't deploy um, off to Asia for two years or a year um, with the children. And they said, well, you know, we, we just don't, that's something we haven't really addressed yet. Um, remember, this was still in the mid 90s, early to mid 90s. Yeah. Um, and so I left. I was very sad to leave. I really enjoyed my time in the, uh, in the military, um, for all the things that the military can offer. Um, but I left and I went from uh, one day I was in Derriford Hospital in Plymouth uh, in full naval uniform as a registrar in cardiology. And the next day I turned up in civvies, civilian clothes. I was very lucky that they took me on and gave me a number for the Southwest uh, training rotation in cardiovascular medicine. But I would say to you that that was in uh, about 1994. Yeah, it was a particularly tough time. I think many on the line here uh, listening to this will know that that was a pretty tough time for working in the NHS. Mm-hmm. It was before the reforms subsequently came in. Um, it was very underfunded 
I mean, it was the case of there were no beds at night, you know, when you're on call, you had to hot bunk, there was very little food. Uh, you know, it was just a really difficult environment. And as much as I loved uh, being in clinical medicine, I decided that I wasn't going to complete my rotation in the Southwest. And I went off to London actually, to into a research fellow role um, up affiliated with Imperial College and then with the National Heart and Lung Institute working on um, in, in, in cardiovascular metabolic medicine. And I enjoyed that for a year or two, but then discovered the joys of grant writing and trying to get access to, to all of that. And remember, I'd already done a global deployment and been in the military and had a really remarkable experience. So one day somebody suggested to me, well, have you thought about the pharmaceutical industry? And I said, and actually was a mentor of mine um, who was the head, the director actually, the National Heart and Lung Institute, Professor Andrew Coates, who's a remarkable individual. He said, Emily, so I think you might, might be interested in this and I think it might fit you professionally. And you can still, you know, pursue your love of science and medicine and research, but it'll take you in a much broader, a much broader, bigger scale, more globally. So I did, yeah. I applied. First job I saw at the British Medical Journal was for a medical advisor entry level at Bristol Myers Squibb and I got the job. And so there I was down in Hounslow in those days where Bristol Myers Squibb was. Um, day one as a medical advisor at Bristol Myers Squibb had no clue what the job was really. It was in the cardiovascular yeah. department, which is good. Um, and that was my transition. And all my friends said to me, why on earth would you do that? I can't imagine why you would do that. Remember that used to be going over to the dark side in those days? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've done it once before. You know, no one expected me to go and uh, pursue a military career. I took the leap. So let's see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, so you, you join Bristol Myers Squibb and then you sort of go on a bit of a journey, sort of being moved around the world. I mean, you went to... Uh, to Melbourne, to Princeton, to Paris, and back to Princeton. Um, and it was interesting, I had a conversation um, in this series with Rupert Bessie, who is, of course, a head of R&D at Bristol-Myers now. And it was interesting because I asked him at the time, well, Bristol-Myers was a very, quite a US-centric company for a long time until the cell gene came in. Was that something you were aware of at the time with Bristol-Myers? Oh, I, you know, <laughs> yes. Bristol Myers Squibb, when I joined it, was an American company yeah. with, um, with international affiliates. It yes. was a, very much from a cultural point of view, from a revenue business point of view, it was, a, it was dominated by the US. Um, and in those days, you know, all the different um, uh, operating countries were really sort of islands in and of themselves. And it was sort of send cash back, do you remember send cash back to the headquarters every year, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, they were all organized as, as independent, almost independent operating units um, around the world. So that's really the culture I found. And it was very East Coast. It was based in Princeton, but remember it's still very dominant from the New York uh, center yeah. because really not that long after the merger of Bristol Myers and Squibb. And when I joined, there were still Squibb sales forces and Bristol Myers sales forces and the merger quite sort of consummated. Um, so that was the company I entered in 1996, seven and in the UK affiliate. So um, then of course, we went on a journey of globalization like many companies where we went to a very different operating model in from about 2002 onwards, which was the globalization of the, of the functions, um, uh, uh, including a major restructuring of R&D. And that actually was how I managed to find my way to Princeton because I mm -hmm. had sent down to Australia to be the executive medical director of Australia and New Zealand and I thought I was going to be there for three years. And I got the phone call after two years there saying, literally in the middle of the night, this was always the way in Australia, um, from Beth Seidenberg, who many of people will know. Beth at that time was the head of development at Bristol Myers Squibb. And she said, Annalisa, tomorrow we're going to announce a complete restructure of R&D globally. All the medical departments are going to become part of a global you know, function. Um, and change the reporting lines. And so tomorrow we're going to announce you as the head of Latin America and Asia Pacific. And can you work with two other people, one in Europe and then a very well-known leader, Brian Daniels in the US. 
to structure the global organization. So we did that. Six months later, I was asked to move to Princeton to head up what was then called the International Medical Division, which was all medical departments outside of the US and Japan. So I was really pulled along and sailed along on that remarkable period of major evolution and transformation as the company globalized. And I would say to you that I don't think Celgene globalized uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb. I think mm -hmm. that one say that Celgene probably brought a much more biotech sort of mm, culture in, but really Bristol-Myers went to become a biopharma in about 2005, 2006, and certainly became far more global. And certainly were, Bristol was appointing internationally trained leaders into positions of, of seniority, um, you know, from about, yeah, I mean, literally from, from 2005 onwards. And if you look at the history of Bristol Myers, I mean, Giovanni Caforio, currently the CEO, came up through Italy, and before him, Lamberto Andriotti, also came mm -hmm. up through the Italian route and all made their way through first the European, then the international, then the global institute. And that was really my career path through, through Bristol. It was really globalizing from, from then on. I think really the cell gene acquisition was all about more, obviously the pipeline and everything, but also bringing in that really sort of West Coast entrepreneurial, you know, mm -hmm. faster decision-making type culture to the company. And it looked like, I mean, obviously you progressed um, brilliantly through the executive ranks during that time. But I noted also that um, it seems that you began your philanthropic activity with the Inspire USA Foundation at the time. Um, was that the result of an approach from the organization to you or was philanthropy something you were always aspiring to? So I, um, right from the time that I, I mean, obviously in the military, uh, there's a mm -hmm. huge set community service um, and giving back to communities um, and outreach. So I think that had always been with me. Um, actually, my, uh, my move far more, um, I guess, uh, my, my definitive move into the philanthropic sector started in Australia, actually, um, when I asked to take over at the time, the strategy, or I was asked, yeah, I guess the strategy and the plan for our corporate social responsibility. Um, because when I arrived there, I noticed that we were giving a lot of money in small grants. And I said, well, it would be great to push all that together and to, to engage in some really meaningful programs that could include the whole of the workforce. And I had, at the time, a great uh, general manager, John Kilburn, who got behind that and said, yeah, well, if you want to do it, give it a go, Annalisa. So that's actually how I came across um, Inspire, because Inspire actually was an Australian um, non-profit organization okay. working on in those days a very innovative doesn't sound very innovative now but in those days it was highly innovative at the end of the 90s uh, view that the use of platforms and social media um, could create peer-to-peer -peer platforms to help young people going through troubled times Bill Gates uh, from his foundation had given some money Elizabeth Murdoch funded a lot in Australia and again it was really about peer-to-peer uh, youth engagement uh, for suicide prevention. And so we got heavily involved in it. Um, I really enjoyed it. And when I was offered the role to go to the US, I offered to Jack Heath, the founder and leader of the organization that I would help um, expand the organization and anchor it in the US. And so that's what I did when I went off to um, Princeton and um, worked for some years actually in that, that area. I have to tell you, you know, in those days, it was very difficult to get people behind mental health and the support mm -hmm. of people living in troubled times and in suicide prevention. It's very, very tough. And I reflect back on that now, given, of course, the time that we find ourselves in now, where I continue to work extensively in the field and how, um, how people now have come to understand the importance of addressing mental health and wellness. But in those days, it was very challenging. But yeah, so that was really the, the continuation of my philanthropic work. Yeah. And, you know, it's expanded a lot since then. <laughs> a lot. 
<laughs> I will say, I will say though that um, I have always felt, and I've spoken extensively about this, that my work in the nonprofit sector has made me, as in, has been tremendously enriching, but it's absolutely made me a better leader in the private sector. And there's yeah. no learning how to build teams, to drive teams, to think about purpose and, and mission, etc. In the nonprofit sector, in many ways, is more challenging than the public sector, and it really does. Um, offer leadership experiences and I've always encouraged people that worked for me to try and combine their philanthropic work with their uh, for-profit work because I think it's a really important part of growing as an individual and as a leader uh, in, yeah. our, in, in our sector. And then uh, 2011 uh, the German Merck, Merck KGA um, in Darmstadt uh, wanted you to come over and, and head up global R&D. So that's an extension out of the pure medical affairs arena into total R&D. Um, clearly a much more senior on exp expansion of your credentials um, beyond the medical affairs arena. Yes, but at, so at Bristol Myers Squibb actually, I, I um, from about 2006 uh, until I, left the company. I had the privilege actually of working for Elliot Siegel and Brian Daniels, leading the, um, leading the teams um, that were overseeing phase two through life cycle management of all the, the programs. So I'd been actually closely aligned with a number of the major development programs and working in, in global clinical development, as well, obviously, in the medical affairs area around, you know, uh, market access, safe and appropriate use, all of the, the you know, familiar medical affairs um, deliverables. I'd also spent a lot of time at Bristol Myers. We're working on the agenda of diversity. We'll come on to talk about that later, probably, but mm -hmm. doing a lot of work on that. I really wanted to get a little bit more back to the development side of things and back to uh, clinical development on a global basis. And so, yeah, actually, when I moved to Merck Serono, Stefan Oshman asked me to come and head up global development, actually, at regulatory medical. Um, so when I landed into Geneva, that was the role that I landed into, but it wasn't long after that. And, and, and the company had been still, was still going through the, really the merger of, of, yeah. of Serono with Merck. Um, and so really the role was to think through what that merged entity would look like within development regulatory medical on a global basis and to think through what the pipeline should become uh, for the new entity and to think about what the geographic footprint should be. So that's, you know, so that's really the job that I landed to in, in Geneva. And not long after that, it was decided that Merck Serono would only need one um, uh, headquarters uh, for that entity in Europe. So we went through the very challenging and difficult task of yeah. in Geneva, which was really very, very challenging. Um, and trying to therefore relocate up through either to Darmstadt in Germany, but also increasingly move uh, one of the epicenters to Boston. Um, yes. Company. And Down then we also. Rockland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There was a fantastic facility there, and I felt very strongly at the time that this was going to be an important strategic move to put a, a very strong hub into, uh, into, into Boston. And then also to establish a, a strong footprint in China, which we did in Beijing, and then one for the rest of the Asia Pacific region, which we did in Tokyo. So, so that was really the initial, the goal um, was to globalize and then to really refine the portfolio down to four or five areas that we, that we wanted to double down and focus on. And I was very pleased that one of those uh, was women's health. Um, we obviously had the immunology platform with the MS, strong MS. Uh, portfolio and, and other uh, programs and then of course oncology which was I felt very strong particularly in the discovery research phase and so we doubled down on that as well. And was uh, Steve Arkinstall um, in the Boston location at that time? Yeah he was yeah very yeah. much so. Yeah. The senior yeah. leader there he subsequently left and has obviously gone on to very successful career leading organizations. Yeah, that's right. He's a great guy. And then um, Three years later, biotech, the siren call of biotech to yeah. uh, take over the mantle at Dimension. 
that's right. And so people often ask me that because by then I had taken on the broader global R&D role at Merck Sorono and um, there'd been some changes um, in leadership. And I think it's fair to say that a couple of things. Um, first of all, you know, I, I was really bought in to be pretty much a change agent. It's been a bit of a pattern in my career, I have to tell you. Was it Bristol Myers? <laughs> I always used to say every two to three years I used to get moved with another problem, uh, go sort it out, Annalisa. Um, so I think at, at Merck Sereno, I felt that I came in and there were, were, there were massive changes. I mean, it, it was a major change for the organization. I think it's fair to say I was a little bit counterculture <laughs> living in Darmstadt. Um, and um, I still had a lot of my, I'd grown up a lot actually in the US corporate culture. So I was learning a lot about how to be yeah. effective in the European and German environment. And it was a tremendous experience. I mean, I look back on it, you know, all the time as to what I learned. Um, but I was, um, I was itching really to, to get back to the US, frankly. And then the third thing was that I felt that I, I just came to the realization that I, and I think I came to it with, with, with the team actually, that I was probably becoming a bit of a square peg in a round hole, that really yeah. what they needed was somebody that would be coming in to really drive the operational execution of the organization that we'd sort of established um, rather than to be, you know, always change, change, change. So anyway, I, I was itching to get back. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I felt it was time to move into the biotech sector because I hadn't done it before. I'd been in pharma. Yeah. And so I was very fortunate actually that, um, I was offered a role to be the founding CEO at Dimension Therapeutics. I'll tell you a little story about that. It was, it was amusing because of course I said, well, I'm, I'm an R&D geek and you know, I've always done R&D. Um, so, you know, I've never been a CEO. Um, and um, why would you, you know, even consider me and the lovely leaders at Fidelity or it was F-Prime and all the meds yeah. said, well, don't- Steve Knight and that crew. Yeah, Steve Knight. <laughs> Steve Knight and Rishi at Orbamed uh, said, well, don't worry, Annalisa, this is spun out of UPenn, Jim Wilson's lab. Um, they're all preclinical assets. The lead program's in hemophilia. Um, it's a, basically a hemophilia gene therapy company. And it's going to be an R&D play, you know, for the next few years. So that's what we want. We want somebody who knows how to do clinical development. You're fine. So of course I landed in the role and there were two, two things that happened within about three months of me arriving. The first thing I wanted to say, I'd gone from running global R&D, which was thousands of people across 60 plus countries with a massive budget. And I landed into Central Square in Boston and there were 10 people in a lab. It was five million bank. And it was in this <clears throat> building, pretty old. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, you know, what have I done? And I moved to Boston, of course, as well. Um, or I'd never lived. Um, but within three months, it became apparent, two things became apparent. First, it couldn't just be a hemophilia company. I had come from Big Pharma. I knew that this notion of optionality, flexibility, and risk mitigation and hedging was really, really important in a pipeline. And this was a very early phase, remember, in the gene therapy, AAV gene therapy um, evolution, you know, that, that, that um, this was in, yeah, 2013. And secondly, so I knew we had to add more programs. And the second thing was that it was, it was, it was, it was entering a bubble. And so of yeah. course, there was access to a lot more capital and gene therapy in those days was starting to really gather momentum. So, so essentially what happened was in the first six months, um, having thought I was gonna sit there doing drug development, um, we added um, two programs in, the OTC and GSD1A programs in that first six months. And the second thing I was asked to do was to go and raise a crossover round. I had no idea what a crossover round was at that first board meeting. Had to go and look it up and call a friend. And uh, so we did actually, we closed the A round in JP Morgan that following year. The following April, we put 65 million into the bank in a crossover. And then some months later, um, launched the company on the NASDAQ. So it was a whirlwind of a ride for me. Yeah. Uh, every day waking up thinking, well, I know how to do the drug development piece, although <laughs> the therapy drug development was still in the early phases, but all this other stuff, was all new to me, but uh, what, a, what a wonderful experience it was and it turned out to be.
and then ultimately sold to Ultragenics. Um, yeah. Was there any thought to uh, pursuing another um, CEO job at that time? It noticeable that you'd really started getting onto other companies' boards as yeah. well during that time. Yeah, so I should say we sold the company far earlier than I had hoped to sell it. Uh, but of course, as it is always in the early phases of these new uh, sectors, new areas, um, the lead program ran into some problems with Im immune related uh, issues with the liver, which actually subsequently we know a lot more about. But we were one of the first, obviously, uh, going through that. The share price tanked, the cost of capital went through the roof. And as I've now subsequently come to learn, and you know, I'm an old hand at this now, um, you know, it was going to take a lot of capital, a lot of dilution for the shareholders. And, you know, the key investors felt that it was time to uh, sell the company. So, and place it into the hands of a company that could scale the portfolio. So that's mm -hmm. what we ended up selling to Ultragenics. I was, it was ultimately a fantastic sale um, for A, the shareholders, but B, also for the employees who all went to Ultragenics, many of whom are still there today. And okay. we all know that programs three and four and five actually um, are, uh, are moving forward and two of them have just moved into phase three and have been very successful. So I feel very good about that. Yeah, and then after I sold, we sold Dimension, um, I was living in Boston and, and then there was this big question as to what next. And of course, the phone rings a lot, <laughs> you know, it does. Um, and from all different quarters, as you can imagine. And so I had to take a bit of a time to really think through, you know, how, how the next phase, you know, what, what should that look like? And I would say to you that I did take on quite a few boards and had started to take on some boards during my time at, at Dimension because I felt that although I love being at Dimension, one of the changes that's quite noticeable going from Big Pharma and senior role at Big Pharma into a biotech is that the job becomes quite parochial and narrow. I mean, it's mm -hmm. tough. It's tough being a biotech CEO, particularly on the NASDAQ, and it's 24-7, but it's really on one company with a portfolio, generally geographically pretty narrow, sometimes not, but largely focused on the US. And I'd been used to being global. I'd done multiple... Yeah. Um, I love the expanse of the of the pharma portfolio. So to do to mitigate that, I've taken on some board roles, and the board have been very supportive. And I feel to this day it's very important for uh, CEOs of small companies to have at least one or two board roles. It takes you out of your day to day, exposes you to so much else, and uh, both geographically, cross sectorally, different leadership, different approaches, best practices. So I had been doing that. And, um, and so I decided actually for the first uh, year or so to make uh, two profound decisions for me actually it was one, I was gonna come back to the UK. I, I, I hadn't been really in the UK since 1999. I had responsibility for uh, business um, divisions or functions, et cetera, in the UK, but I hadn't really lived or worked. Mm -hmm. in the UK and I had had a home in Princeton since 2001 and my children had grown up in the US etc so anyway I decided it was time to come home and secondly I, I was quite tired I have to say I think most people that know me know that I pretty much throw everything I have <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, at, at everything I do and I was tired and I just felt that it would be time to um, just take a year or so to decide what was next. And I got some really good advice from mentors that said, don't rush, um, don't worry that you won't fall off the radar. And I was worried that, you know, if people hadn't heard from me for a year, that that would be it, my career would be over. Um, and I was, you know, turning, I'm just 50, 51. And I, so I decided to do that. And frankly, I didn't really listen to all the advice because, I did get offered some really interesting board roles and some nonprofit work and various other things. And I did take on a lot of it because I'm not very good at saying no. So of course, a year later, I woke up to the fact that I had a lot of commitments and therefore perhaps I was destined to not do an operating role <laughs> for mm -hmm. a period of time. And so that's what happened. I really built up a portfolio. It wasn't really planned. None of my life has really been planned, I have to say, but it yeah. just seemed 
happened that um, I, I woke up one day and I had five public board roles. I had a number of private boards. I'd also taken on some nonprofit and some public policy work. And it was a fun, and it is a fun portfolio. I often say it's a bit like being a partner in a venture fund, but with no fund, which has its downsides. <laughs> because no infrastructure behind you. But it's certainly, it's as busy and as complex and as broad as anything I've worked on. Um, and I always think of it really a bit like running a big R&D organization. It's got multiple different assets, multiple different teams, multiple different geographies. I love that it's nonprofit. I love its private sector and I love that it's um, it, it's still in the private sector because um, I think that's really important. Yeah. And, and obviously you're sitting on several you also organization boards at the moment um, and you've spent so much time out of the country. Um, how aware do you think people are, say, particularly in the US, about where the UK life science sector is at the moment and the opportunities it represents? Well, the reason I came back to the UK, one of the reasons, I mean, obviously came back for some personal reasons, but I, um, I also came back because I had been observing the evolution of the UK life sciences sector. Um, yeah. Early on, been observing the evolution of the regulatory frameworks, the clinic, early phase clinical work, some of the incentives in the system. I'd always known that there had been a wonderful set of sub substrate really in the UK as it, as, it, as it relates to our academic institution. I was just fascinated by what I thought would be the next era for the UK and also Europe, to be honest. I mean, you know, I, so, and remember I came back in 17. That was an interesting period of time as it related yeah. to the relationship in Europe. But, um, but what I would say to you is that I also, many of my colleagues and friends questioned why I would come back to the UK, of course. Um, and it's an answer to your question. I think that, I think, I mean, I know that with some exceptions, the UK life science uh, ecosystem is largely unknown to the yes. US, okay? Let me just say largely. Now, for organizations that have already, like venture capitalists have already place bets here and where they've been successful, relatively few, of course, they've come to learn, you know, about the opportunities here. Uh, organizations that uh, by dint of their portfolios have come and partnered with and experienced the clinical research environment, particularly in the rare diseases space, I would say in oncology as well, where we're particularly, mm -hmm. oncology where we're particularly strong, early phase, you know, love the UK. <laughs> So, so I think that it's really broadly the answer is it's sort of unknown, um, but the real answer is it depends. Um, and it also depends on who you talk to, because there are people like myself, uh, your community, that obviously often continue to maintain a very working, uh, active working knowledge and relationship with the UK by dint of their nationality. So I think that, you know, is there an opportunity? Yes, there's a huge opportunity um, to broaden that awareness, to ensure that all the opportunities we have for that collaboration can be realised. You know, I mean, it's interesting that what we have found with our community is actually there is a lot of ignorance, even though they're from here, they might have been gone for quite a long time, and therefore they have rather historical views. They don't actually perhaps realize that things have moved on. And that's why part of our education effort in terms of sending out a steady digest of news about the UK is very much designed, because their influence is designed to actually get them thinking a bit more about the UK, not just for emotional reasons, but for strategic reasons. Well, that's a really good point. Um, when I came back in 17, I, I felt as if I'd landed into a foreign world. Mm -hmm. I, networks I didn't understand how work got done I didn't understand how the power and influence flowed around the system I didn't know most of the people that held the positions of power and influence in our sector and I will tell you it was tough I mean yeah. I knew how to navigate the ecosystem in the US and I just found that it was tremendously challenging and even to this day I still think you know four years later 
I still am trying to learn how the system works, not only just our ecosystem, but, you know, um, you know, the health system, you know, and how decisions get made, you know, in government and policy. I mean, just everything. It's the whole entire it's life science ecosystem. Um, it's difficult to understand if you if you aren't working in it day to day and you haven't done so over a period of time. And also, certainly in the UK, I think like in all countries, there are certain individuals that do um, hold a lot of the power and influence yes. uh, and are very influential, actually, and really important to start to, to become known to them um, and to decide how you want to contribute, make a difference and how you want to be effective. So, so I agree with you. Um, just because you happen to be British national doesn't mean to say you really understand uh, what, what the whole of this UK life science um, ecosystem looks like, how it works. And as you say, it's undergone an enormous amount of change. Yes. And you can't possibly keep up with that if you're working on a global basis. You can't keep up with what's going on at an individual country level. Often if you're very senior as well, you know, it's your people down through the organisation that have far more working knowledge, say in the regulatory department of, you know, the MHRA and how that works and how, yep. what its strengths are, etc. You wouldn't necessarily have that as your working knowledge if you're really at more senior C-suite level um, in, in, in the US. Yeah, navigate, navigating the system is hard. Um, it is quite complex. And yet, the marriage of, that you see in the UK of government, academia, industry, charities, to me, is actually a key differentiating um, factor within the UK when, it, when you're talking about other um, locales, other geographies accessing it. And then this notion of health and wealth um, is really interwoven into what we do here, which is very different to other environments. And I think accepting that we have got a different environment, but being able to navigate it with outside partners is important. Um, your thoughts on this? And, and again, I guess the, uh, going back to this constant problem of the awareness internationally of what the UK has to offer and then how to navigate them through it. Yes. Um, so the first thing to say is that uh, the fact that the government and a series of governments, actually, which has allowed us to come to this position, actually, because there's been a consistent policy over a period of time now, um, yeah. has innovation and the life sciences sector, you know, pretty high up in its uh, hierarchy of priorities, I think is really important because, of course, it's important that the messaging it comes from the top, it comes in a consistent way, and it's not just messaging, it's followed by action, and that, you know, all, um, uh, and policy. So the fact that the government has uh, championed the life science sector, particularly in certain areas, and is going to continue to do that, and follow it up with innovative ideas around incentives, regulation, funding, I think is tremendously important, and we need to we need to get better at communicating that um, as a country. Yeah. Um, I think that the, uh, the, the other point is that, um, it, you know, understanding that, <laughs> that the UK is open for business and is welcoming international collaboration is tremendously important. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, whether this is in the academic world, the private sector, the young, the young companies, the growth companies, the people are looking to build, uh, to, 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 to innovate and to build uh, new products and services, et cetera, therapeutics, um, and be willing to collaborate and potentially to move globally with those is really, really important. I mean, I have mm -hmm. a strong opinion at the moment that the UK can clearly and should clearly be one of the top two to three uh, geographical locations in the world for life science yeah. innovation. You know, that's, that's a given. The question really becomes, what is the overarching goal of the country? Well, it has to be, of course, to generate jobs. It has to generate um, revenue and support the, eco the economy of the country. It also has to have its eye firmly fixed on improving the lives and the care of 
people living in the UK through its national health comes with that. But it shouldn't exclude the ability of great companies moving to sell their equity or to part, you know, another market in other markets, but also to partner on a global basis. Because as long as we're creating jobs in the UK, as long as the IP stays here, and as long as you know, we continue in a virtual cycle to encourage the next generation of these technologies to come through. It's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. So that, that has to be a clear statement of the strategy globally. And I'm really thrilled that the government under John Bell and John Simon's leadership are going to be reissuing uh, the next phase of their industrial life science strategy uh, in July. Um, endorsed, I believe, um, by the most senior levels of the government. And I hope that will be a platform again from which to continue our education. Um, yeah. More yeah, it comes back to relevance. Now, now, you've recently joined the Genomics England board. Um, you, you led a gene therapy company. Those are two key areas of strength with the UK. Um, do you think, again, we're going back to this, this old chestnut of do you think people outside the UK understand the level of prioritization and the integral role of genomics um, and the cell and gene therapies that's been carved out in the UK um, with both areas relying on a pro-innovation regulation regime? Yes, so the answer to that is um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a huge opportunity to continue to educate. I think I said earlier on, um, those that are working in the field of uh, genomics, rare diseases, oncology, personalized medicine, actually those working in the cell therapy space as well, um, for cell and gene therapy, obviously often talked about in the same breath, although they are different. Um, they have a number of common themes and dynamics associated with them. Um, I think are very aware of the fact that this has been a consistent strategy for the government and for the sector for a number of years now. Um, I think the other thing is, of course, we've seen some success stories in this space. Um, you know, Oxford Biomedica, we've seen um, Orchard Therapeutics, um, yeah. there are companies that are coming through, um, and uh, Freeline. I mean, there's a whole load of them are coming through, um, and in the cell therapy space as well, of course. Um, so, so there are two things. First of all, you need the government to be saying the right thing and putting their money where their mouth is. And I think they have done that to a certain extent. We can always say that it should be more, but I yeah. think the government believes it should be government and private sector putting their money where their mouth is. Uh, but but like examples, exemplars of where companies have been successful um, are also very, very important. And the Genomics England is an interesting um, topic because, as you know, that's a public health body. That's a, a company, an arm's length body um, of the government. Um, it completed the um, 100,000 Genomes Project and is now becoming the uh, Genetic Medical Medicine Service of the National Health Service. That's an enormous priority for Genomics England. Um, yeah. And but also is looking at some really innovative models for newborn screening, for early cancer detection um, and personalized medicine, uh, looking more broadly at sequencing um, far more um, genomes of diverse populations. There's some really interesting innovative work going on there. However, that cannot go on in isolation because it is a public body. It has to go forward with collaboration with the private sector and with academia. And that's really the way that uh, the model is moving. So I think what we'd like to say in the UK is that we have everything. You know, we have yes. a vibrant, um, uh, vibrant academic platform in this space. We've shown that these um, innovations can come out of academia into the private sector. We have shown that we are very robust at clinical research in this space. Uh, we have centers of excellence um, that um, are very much enabled by our progressive regulatory environment. And we have increasingly um, seed and growth capital flowing into this sector as well. So, mm -hmm. and, and we have importantly, really importantly, this is where we are truly differentiated, is we have a national health service, which yes. is a wonderful platform, not only to get access to um, investigators and obviously participants for clinical trials, but also 
to get access to data. And we haven't really talked about that uh, uh, today, but um, in this podcast, but you know, data, as we know, is the new oil. And we need to uh, recognize that in the UK, we have a unique ability to get access to retrospective, but also prospective longitudinal data um, within our system. Um, and we have the ability to do that in a way where the population hopefully trusts that we're going to use that in the right way, or the yeah. right phrase, and where we can really use that to um, accelerate the ability to discover uh, biology, new medicines, new approaches, but also to think about how we implement better healthcare in the system, and then use that globally. So I, I'm conscious that we're running on on time a little bit, but just to, just to touch back on philanthropy again, you're, you're on the board of Faster Cures, Michael Milken's group in the States, and you're uh, on the British Art Foundation here in the UK. Uh, a quick perspective on the relative merits of, of the charitable sectors in both countries. Uh, yes, um, so, so the first statement, I. I would say is that uh, the charitable sector, nonprofit sector is a crucial part of our ecosystem yeah. because uh, they can fund and source access to funding, particularly for academia. Um, they can also mobilize patient associations and put the voice of the patient and their carers firmly at the center of innovation, regulation, critical, critical role and related to that, they're also able, with the trust of populations, to curate data on our populations because they have the trust and the respect generally of, of, of society. So I don't believe that a vibrant ecosystem can go forward uh, without active participation of the charitable sector. What we do need, though, is to those organizations to be at the right scale and to be run led, run and resourced in and governed in the right way, because we need the British Heart Foundation, for example, is a remarkable organization, it's a huge organization with thousands and thousands of employees, a long, long history. And it's the bigger, biggest funder, as you know, of cardiovascular research and British Heart Foundation fellows. But it, it plays a role in policy. It plays a role in driving agendas in the UK. Now has just announced a collaboration, interestingly, with a number of similar institutions on a global basis so that they can come together in the nonprofit sector and work on some common themes that relate to the nonprofit sector. So I think that critical. What I would say is getting funding for the nonprofit sector is far easier in the US than it is in the UK, because in the US, the culture is of giving and is of philanthropy. And those to those so much is given, so much is expected in return, that is yeah. part of the culture. Thinking yes. of you is a little bit of a different culture. And I hope that moving forward in our slightly new world order now, that um, individuals will see that the reallocation and, um, and this whole area of um, supporting, you know, the nonprofit sector, I'm hoping will we'll come to the fore. We're starting to see that actually in this uh, COVID world. Um, particularly a willingness to ask the questions around how can I allocate my capital into the nonprofit sector most effectively to do good, particularly in the health in the, in the healthcare and social care sectors. Yeah, and I guess I, in closing, I should obviously mention come back to bells. Um, interested in your perception of the relative importance of bells going forward and how it can make an impact for the UK and indeed for members of the Bells community, particularly around influencing influencers. Yeah, so I would say that um, the community you've built um, is re remarkable in many ways and unique. Um, I would say it has two roles. Uh, one is to be a tremendous advocate, be informed, uh, be an advocate for the UK. As the UK grows, everybody benefits for many different reasons. Um, and it, it grows in the right way. So championing um, the, uh, the UK as a strong global uh, epicenter for life science innovation, I think is important. But secondly, the UK needs capabilities and skills. So having the ability to tap into 
the wonderful community of Bells to bring some of that expertise back to the UK. The biggest challenge the UK has in the implementation of its um, life science strategy for the next 10 years is access to talent. Um, we will get access to capital. Capital flows where there's opportunities. It may take a time, it may ebb and flow a little bit. Inevitably it will flow because that's what capital does in the market. The, the issue is talent. So the issue is that as we grow is can we find access to the right skill sets we need to unlock um, and optimize the opportunities that lie before us. So I'm hoping that the Bells community will uh, some will move like me, obviously, decide to move back. Others might be able to submit some of their time as board members, uh, yeah. advisor, advisory yeah. board members. Tremendously important. So be a voice, be an advocate for the UK because it's a win-win. And secondly, if possible, donate or you don't even have to donate it, you get paid for it at times. <laughs> um, <laughs> some of your professional working hours to help um, the sector um, to help the sector grow and build its strengths on a global basis, levering, leveraging your experiences that you've had as a Bells member as you've traveled the world and pursued your profession in different parts of the world. Yeah, brilliant. Um, we could go on and on all afternoon discussing things. We've got a lot of topics that we still need to discuss at some stage, particularly data. Um, so hopefully there's going to be other opportunities to uh, reconvene with you and uh, talk. But uh, Annalisa Jenkins, thank you very much for today's contribution. Thank you.